What we're going to do now is we're going to look at the second week in our series, looking at Genesis. And uh, we called this little series, Let There Be Light. And what we're doing, as it says on the front of the news sheet, is we're looking at the most difficult passages perhaps there are in the book of Genesis, perhaps the most difficult passages in the entire Old Testament, actually. Last week, we looked at the hymn, the story of Genesis chapter 1, the six days of creation. How do you understand these things? Do we take them literally, etc., etc.? I'm not going to say anything more about that now. If you missed it, you really should uh, listen to the podcast of last week, because so many Christians get confused, and then we kind of think we've not got a faith. If we can't trust Genesis chapter 1, how can we trust any of the Bible? And if we can't talk to our friends about Genesis chapter 1 because they just think we've lost our marbles, how do we talk to them about any of the Bible? So uh, do listen uh, to the podcast from last week. But this week we're going to deal with uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And Mark read uh, from chapter 3. Um. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve and the talking snake and the apple and the tree of the knowledge of right and wrong and the tree of life and being thrown out of the garden and the snake having to crawl around on his belly for the rest of eternity because he spoke to Eve and misled her. All of that. What do you make of that? How does that fit together? So there's something I want to say, uh, well, right at the beginning. It's this. A lot has been said about this story in Genesis, which has nothing to do with this story in Genesis at all. Um, I should say, I suppose, it's been used for some great art. There's Michelangelo's um, The Creation of Adam, on the wall, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, God reaching out to bring Adam to life. Uh, but it's been used for lots else as well. This uh, story that we've just read together, or we've read half of it together, has been used in support of vegetarianism. Adam and Eve only ate vegetables, they did not eat meat. Now, I have to tell you this, we held a conference which Daryl ran around uh, looking at uh, animal care, creature care, which was brilliant. And there's a lot to be said around the theology of creature care and our moral responsibility to the rest of the planet. But there is no way, Jose, that this passage has got anything to do with vegetarianism. It's sometimes used by people who want to say this is something to do with veganism. I mean, it has as little to do with the issue of veganism as it does with the issue of vegetarianism. It's like trying to argue from Genesis 1, which we talked about last week, that the world was made in six 24-hour periods. That's just not what the passage is about. If someone wants to believe that God made the world in uh, six 24-hour periods, six literal days, because he can do anything he likes, they can believe that, of course. But to use Genesis 1 as support for that argument 
It's just anti-intellectual. It's not what the passage is about at all. Likewise, this story is not about vegetarianism. And it's not about veganism. It's been used by vegans and vegetarians. It's been used by anti-feminists. It's been used by feminists. It's not about feminism and it's not about anti-feminism. Although anyone can dig around and, and pull out half a verse and twist it and use it for something that the story is not about. It's been used, unbelievably, of course, by nudists. <laughs> nudists love this passage. Not only did Adam and Eve not eat meat, they didn't wear clothes. This is not a proof passage for nudism. It's not some kind of biblical warrant for stripping off when you feel like it. Now, I use that one as a funny one because everybody laughs about it. But you see, the other um, categories I just gave are as stupid. It's just that, well, we sometimes don't take the Bible seriously. It's also been used, of course, as an anti-gay passage. I heard it said just last week, I've just come back from the States this morning, I just got off an aeroplane at 7.30 this morning, I was in the States all last week, and I heard someone say, um, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I'm sure you've heard that before. A wonderful little ditty and a rhyme, but absolutely nothing to do with this passage if you're going to be serious about taking the first few pages of the Bible world. And by the way, whilst I'm talking about that, let me just say that um, in a couple of uh, Tuesdays' time, we start Open House, which is, um, uh, we're going to launch and run every uh, few weeks, but you can read about it in the news sheet, an open, open house a place where people have been abused because of the misuse of this passage and others uh, around their sexuality to be able to come and feel welcome and feel able to tell their stories or listen to other people's stories. So we'll look at that in the news sheet. It's been used in all sorts of ways. Whilst I was in the States, I saw this car sticker. God's original plan was to hang out in a garden with some naked vegetarians. <laughs> a great, funny car sticker. It's a good one, isn't it? But nothing to do with what the passage is actually about. The first thing that we need to know about what this passage is about, this story is about is that it is the second creation story in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 that we looked at last week are a creation account. And they are distinctly, and it is distinctly different to this one, which is the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3. The Adam and Eve story is not a forward is not the second chapter of the God made the world in six days story. They are completely different stories and they contradict one another. I'll tell, give you just two ways in which they contradict one another. 
Some people say there are no contradictions in the Bible. I always think those people haven't read the first two chapters of the Bible. Because chapter 2, the story of Adam and Eve, is different to chapter 1, the six days of creation. Here's just two differences. There are others you can spot. In, uh, in uh, chapter 1, in the story of creation, uh, the six days of creation, God forms uh, the earth and then he creates the sun and the moon, etc., etc. And then he comes on to create the vegetation. And then on the next day, he makes animals and human beings. So the vegetation exists and is created um, earlier than human beings. But in Genesis chapter 2, in this story, it simply says this. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no uh, work uh, on the no one to work on the ground. Then the Lord formed man from the dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils, and he became a living being. So the orders reversed. Genesis one tells us it was vegetation, and much later, uh, human beings. But Genesis two, this story tells us. It was human beings before there was any vegetation on earth. But like we learned last week, these are not historical accounts. To take the Bible seriously, as we said last week, does not always mean taking it literally. It's not that we can pick and choose. You can't go through and say, hey, I don't like the fact of the historical uh, narrative of Jesus' resurrection, so I won't believe in it. Because that's not taking it seriously. It's an, it's an historical account of an historical event. So to describe it as a metaphor for a kind of spiritual event that didn't actually happen in reality... Well, that's a fine conclusion to come to if you choose to come to that conclusion, you know, because everybody has to wrestle with these things for themselves. But it's not a serious way of treating an historical account. But likewise, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, that's true because it's not literal. God isn't a shepherd. And he's not a strong tower. And God isn't the Lion of Judah. These things are only true because we understand them metaphorically. So when we sing, the Lord is my shepherd, we know instantly it's a metaphor, it's poetry. The Lord's my shepherd, it means he's there for us. He's our carer. He doesn't leave us. But God is not a shepherd, literally. Because we understand poetry as metaphor, it's true. But the moment we understand metaphor as, as um, literal truth, it becomes false. So if I say to you, Mark, who read the reading, I know him well. Mark, he's a real diamond. The only moment that's not true is if you take it as being literally true. But you see, when I say Mark's a real diamond, you all know what I mean. It's a metaphor. It means you can rely on Mark. You know, he's a gem of a person. Another metaphor. But of course, he's not a diamond and he's not a gem. He's a man. 
So to take something seriously is not the same as to take it literally. Genesis chapter 1 is a poem. Genesis chapter 2 is a fable. It's a deep story to tell us great truths. The very fact that we stood in South London in 2017 and we've just read again this fable that was written down for the first time about 500 BC proves it has enduring power and has something really significant to say to us. So, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is a different story to Genesis uh, chapter 1. And it's at odds with it. It's at odds in the order, but I said I'd tell you two little odds with uh, chapter 1, and then I'll leave you to work out the rest. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, it says this. It says, well, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, etc., etc. And then verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So according to Genesis chapter 1, God created male and female at the same time. According to Genesis chapter 2, He created Adam, a man, who then felt lonely. And at a later stage, he creates a woman called Eve. Now, the Jews understood this straight away. This is, of course, a Hebrew text. It's the Hebrew Bible that we've borrowed. And the Jews have scholars who we call rabbis now, and have worked for thousands of years on understanding these two stories. And they realized there was a difference between them. And so we know the teaching of the rabbis dating right back to Jesus' day and onwards. So Jesus would have been familiar with these understandings himself because we have them written down from that same period. Some rabbis argued that what happens in Genesis chapter 1 is that God made people male and female. Everyone was male and female. They were all hermaphrodite. Now, you might find that extraordinary, but that's the serious opinion of the Jewish people to whom this book was given, dating right back to the time of Jesus. They were androgynous. They were a hermaphrodite. And that what God does in this new story, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, is he creates men and women, Adam and Eve, differently. Some people, some Jewish scholars, rabbis, contemporaries of Jesus and afterwards, we don't know what Jesus thought because he never spoke of this aspect But some argued that in Genesis chapter 1, God creates men and women. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we pick up the story of Adam. And later he's lonely and Eve is created. And it is taught in, it's it's taught in some synagogues. I've got to qualify that in a minute. Um, It's taught in some synagogues. That's because Eve was Adam's second wife. And he had another wife. And he fell out 
and I'll, I'll go on for too long if I explain why. You, I won't even tell you why Adam fell out with his first wife, but you'd be surprised if you read about it. And all of this stuff is out there. You know, you can pick it up. Don't Google it now. Um, but Eve was his second wife. And they had to work through the difficulties in their relationship. So all, the only reason I tell you that stuff is that when I say Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and 3 are different stories, it's not like me being a bit liberal and coming up with something new rather than biblical. In actual fact, the oldest writings about these passages acknowledge their different stories from the start. So in a minute, I'm going to get practical because this is, this is to encourage us in our journey through life not to get bogged down in some kind of doctorate level study of old, you know, primeval texts. But just a little bit of study might help. And I promise this is the only bit we're going to do. Right? It's just two slides. Here's the thing. How do we know that Genesis 1 is different to Genesis 2 and 3, the Adam and Eve story, besides the fact that they clash with one another? It's because they're written in an entirely different style to one another. It's almost, in, well, it is impossible that the same person wrote them both because they're completely different. They use different words. They even use a different name for God. Genesis chapter 1 talks about God as Elohim which is a generalized name for God. Adam and Eve's story talks about God as Yahweh, a different name for God. And we know, we know, no one doubts. In fact, I've just been in, um, as I said, in America this week, in Cincinnati, with a bunch of scholars, including Walter Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, as those of you who do theology, will know he is the preeminent Old Testament theologian in the world. He's 86. To say to Walter, the books of Moses were all written by Moses, he'd just think, what planet are you on? It's understood by everyone that they're actually four or perhaps five sources. What we call, what we call the JEDP theory, but this is the JEDPR. So basically, there are some passages that are in the first five books of the Bible that refer to God as Yahweh, Jehovah. It's the same name in different languages. And that's called, they're called the J texts. And then there are passages that refer to God as Elohim. And they're called the E texts. It's not just that they call God different names, they're just written in completely different styles. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a completely different style of writing, and we say that that was written by the Deuteronomist. And then there's some priestly stuff. 
it, it, it seems to come out of the priestly movement. It talks about the priesthood a lot and expresses their ideas. And we call that the P-source. And then there's an R-source as well, which is the redactor, the editor, who put it all together. We know that the first five books of the Bible, as we have them, came into being, as we have them, around 500 uh, B.C., We know that. Or they were compiled slowly through that that time. And some people say that the redactor is actually a guy who you know the name of, Ezra the priest. Ezra the priest who has his own book in the uh, Old Testament when they rebuild Jerusalem. What he did is he took together all of these sources and he, he got all the stories. You know, just like you might, editing something together a magazine or a newspaper, he put them all together. And that's very confusing, but there are some of the different sources. And seeing Genesis, it just charts where all these different stories come from, we think. Anyway, that's the end of the serious bit. Here's the thing, though. We know, because you can go to the British Museum and find this stuff, and actually you don't even have to go that far, that there was a very ancient story that predates the Adam and Eve story called the Garden of God. In fact, the story of the Garden of God, a phrase that Genesis doesn't use, crops up in, in several Mesopotamian civilizations and their writings. Just like last week, remember, we talked about Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian story or poem of the creation of the world. And then we saw that the writer of Genesis 1 obviously knew that story because what he writes or she writes is very similar, but they make distinct changes. And we can learn a lot from what they were trying to say and get across to us because of the changes they make. They edit out bits of the Babylonian story they disagree with and they put in new points that they want to make about their God, the God of the universe, the God of love. So there's this well-known story called the Garden of God that crops up in lots of places. Now, you're expecting me to say that if you go to the British Museum, you can read the Garden of God story. You don't even have to go to the British Museum. It's in Ezekiel, chapter 28 and chapter 31. The Garden of God story is very similar to the Adam and Eve Garden of Eden story, but it's different. It is clear that Ezekiel, in those chapters, is quoting the Garden of God story that was well known by everyone, and he's put it into the Bible. But the Garden of God story is different to the Garden of Eden story. First of all, because the Garden of Eden story never uses the phrase the Garden of God, but if you read in Ezekiel, and you can read it in other ancient accounts of the Garden of God story, it's far more fat, far more far-fetched than the Garden of Eden story. Even in Ezekiel, we've not got the whole story there. They're just two chunks of it that are left. But the trees have jewels on them. 
There are diamonds in this garden, the garden of God. There are diamonds hanging from the trees. It's a magic garden. And this was really well known, this story, which is why Ezekiel quotes it. And it's, you know, they're big chunks. Should read them later. But in the Garden of Eden story, all the trees that grow jewels and diamonds are gone. All the magic has gone. The Garden of Eden story is a lot more realistic and down to earth. All of the Garden of God stories are about the same thing. In the Garden of God stories, there's a tree that's featured and it's called the Tree of Life. Because all ancient people, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, all of them quested for the same thing, immortality. And in all of the Garden of God stories, if you can get near to the tree of life and touch the tree of life and eat from the tree of life, you will never die. And all ancient peoples were on this quest for eternal life, to live forever, to not taste death. It's really interesting, therefore, that in the Garden of Eden story we've just read, you should read it again, chapter 2 and 3 when you get home, there are two trees. There's the tree of life, and there's the tree that features most, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's where the apple is that Eve takes and eats. It's not on the tree of life. The tree of life is in there but just gets ignored through most of the story. The story revolves around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now here's the extraordinary thing. In all the accounts of the Garden of God story that we still have, including the one in Ezekiel... The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is never, ever mentioned. It's utterly unique to the story in Adam, the Adam and Eve story. It's like a new thing. It doesn't appear before anywhere, and it doesn't appear afterwards. We've never dug it up. No archaeologist has ever found any, any account of this tree except in this story. And the reason is simply this. The writer of the Garden of Eden story is saying it's not about living forever. It's not about immortality. It's about morality. It's not about how you live after you're dead. It's about how you live and what you do with your life now. This is a reminder, and it's just in chapter 2 and 3 of the Bible, having set out the glory of God in the hymn that's Genesis chapter 1, so the editor, the redactor of all the material that makes up Genesis, by the way, uh, Genesis chapter 1 is a story that calls God Elohim, so it's an E source, and Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is a J source, because it talks about God as Yahweh. And when the redactor puts these two stories together, he tells the hymn of creation, and the next story he wants to tell is about morality and choice-making and decision-making. 
And he wants to say the whole question of whether you're going to live forever, that's not what we're concerned about. What we're concerned about is how you live now. It's not about life after death, it's about life before death. It's about morality, not uh, mortality. So, the tree of life in the Adam and Eve story is pretty much ignored altogether as we talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, I talked about some of the abuses of this story before we started, but I'd just like to talk about one other, far more serious than nudists claiming it as their, you know, as the story legitimizes taking their clothes off. It's the story that's called Original Sin. Original Sin, you've heard of it. It says, you are guilty from birth. As you were created in your mother's womb, you are guilty. It says that there is nothing good in us. It says that the only way God can be pleased with us is through what Jesus does on the cross for us. That God looks at us in our wretchedness and in our sin and he sees only our shame. The problem is this, that the idea of original sin, the whole concept, really came about through a guy called Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century AD. It's in another guy's writing, he's called Irenaeus, a little bit in the 2nd century, but it's in the 5th century and it's in John Calvin's writing in the 16th century. When this story was written down, no one had ever heard of original sin. And indeed, the passage doesn't mention sin at all. It's just not in there. Whilst we're at it, the passage doesn't say that the serpent is Satan. It just doesn't say it. It's just a serpent. It's a snake. In my view, the doctrine of original sin is terrible. It's one of the most awful doctrines that the church has ever, ever dreamt up. And the living proof of it is some of us in this room right now. Because we carry around endless guilt and shame. Christians are supposed to live by faith, by grace, But I find amongst Christians very often more guilt than in anyone else. I feel guilty because I don't pray enough. I don't read the Bible enough. I had these filthy thoughts. I thought about this. I feel guilty because of the way I've lived my life and the mistakes I made. I feel guilty because I don't give enough. I feel guilty, 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 guilty. Christians are bogged down in guilt. And it comes from this original sin idea. Here's the thing, though, if you look back at the passage. Eve is tempted by the talking snake to eat from the tree, eat the apple. By the way, it's not an apple at all. Um, It it, it couldn't have been an apple. It's a mistranslation. The, The point is, apples don't grow in that part of the world. So it's not like, you know, they've never seen an apple. They haven't got a clue what an apple is. In fact, the rabbis teach that it was a fig. It was a fig tree, 
which makes sense because they then used fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And figs do grow in that part of the world. But apples don't. If we had another 10 minutes, I could tell you about how we got to apple when it just says fruit. But the point is this. The point is this. Eve ate the fruit of the tree of good and evil... And she became aware of good and evil, so we're told. But she was obviously aware of good and evil before that. Because God said, don't eat of this tree. It's wrong. There was only one commandment that Adam and Eve had. They didn't have to love their neighbors. They didn't have any. Do you know, there were no commandments for Adam and Eve except do not eat of the fruit of this tree. That was the one rule. And they managed to break it. But it proves that they knew about good and bad before they did it. And the snake was in the garden tempting them. So good and evil and the knowledge of good and evil existed before Eve ate the apple. So what changed when she did eat the apple? Does that make sense? Here's another question. Why would God want to withhold the knowledge of good and evil from us? You know, what's the point in learning maths and history and art and literature? Learning to drive a car and hold a bank account if we don't know about good and evil. We've got a name for people who don't understand good and evil. We call them sociopaths. So why is God trying to stop Adam and Eve knowing the difference between good and evil. It's clear they already do, and they know they've done wrong when they take the apple. And anyway, you want your children to know the difference between good and evil, do you not? We want our society to know the good difference between good and evil. So why is God trying to stop it? Here's what it's actually about. Now, you kind of think, What right have I got to tell you what this passage is about? I have no right at all. But let me tell you this. It is a fact, but go check it out. This story occurs in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 2 and 3 of the whole thing. It's the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Old Testament, but it's the Hebrew Bible. No Jew in the entire history of studying this story, no Jewish leader or teacher or rabbi, no Jew ever has written that this story is about original sin. No Jew ever has said it's about Adam and Eve's sin, so therefore we all fall under the curse and we're all cursed by sin forever. No Jew ever What the Jews teach about this passage is something else. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The clue is in the knowledge of good and evil. God says to Eve, don't eat the fruit of that tree. Remember, this is metaphor. It's a story. Don't do that. Don't take that shiny fruit and eat it. And because God says don't do it, Eve wants to do it. You know, it's in every story, isn't it? Don't go through that door, and it's the only door your kids want to go through. So Eve takes the apple, 
And this, the story tells us that she sees the apple and she's enticed and seduced by the sight of the apple. And then she touches the apple, the fruit, the fig, and it's even more alluring. And then she tastes it. The thing she's asked not to do, she does. Up until that point, good and bad had been um, hypothetical. But at this point, Eve actually engages in what's wrong. What the rabbis teach about this passage is it's Adam and Eve stepping away from innocence. In the story, they're created fully grown uh, mature adults, aren't they? They don't grow up. They're created man and woman. And the rabbis have always taught about this passage. In fact, it's on the, the side of, of the Torah. The, the, you know, they, they teach it universally that this all happens in a day. So God makes Adam and Eve in the story because it's a story to teach us the great truth. God makes Adam and Eve and he says, come my way. But he gives them freedom. We are free moral agents. All of us, we're free moral agents. That's partly what happened this week with that fire, isn't it? We are free moral agents and people cut corners and they shave off money and people decide that they're not going to give local councils cash to invest in the poor and the rich live in luxury and the poor live in crummy little housing and it happens right here in our community as we all know. We are free moral agents and we're making moral choices all of the time. So in the story Adam and Eve they know about good and bad But then Eve gets tempted. And the Jewish leaders and teachers all say, this is a story about growing up and the leaving behind of innocence and the stepping into adult maturity. It's a journey the whole of humanity goes on and it's a journey each one of us goes on. Little Noah's up there. Do you know? There he is with Ben and Verity. Little Noah was born a week ago. Do you really believe that little Noah, in his innocence, is under God's wrath and anger because he's an original sinner? By the 16th century, because of the doctrine of original sin, it was believed by the church that an unbaptized child was hateful to God, which is why people rush to get their babies baptized when they think, you know, they might die. It was actually formally taught by the church that an unbaptized child was hateful to God because when God looks at us, he only sees our sin. That's why I say that the doctrine of original sin is a really difficult one to deal with. Rather, Genesis says, we're made by God and we're good. And he looks at us and he says, it's very good, I love you all, but... What we have to do, like every child, every young child, you watch a young child with, their, with his or her parents, and they live in innocence. And what mum and dad says, what mummy and daddy says, is the thing that happens all the time. But there comes that point when they grow from innocence into real decision-making for themselves. And they make mistakes, and they learn from those mistakes. But they learn that there are consequences of mistake-making. There are consequences of choosing to go it the wrong way. And what Adam and Eve learn is exactly that. As they step from their innocence into 
full knowledge of decision-making. And then they're cast out of the garden before they can ever get to eat of the tree of eternal life. They're cast out of the garden as a consequence. And it's like the story's telling us, when you choose the wrong way, there are consequences. And Adam and Eve are told that they will find life hard and harsh and they're slog from then on. And their labor, they've got to leave behind the paradise island called Eden and they've got to struggle through life. And the lesson is this, as we leave behind innocence and we make wrong choices, we have to live with them. There's this guy, I'm told, I, got a friend who's a doctor who went to see, he'd been smoking for 40 years. This, I've got a doctor friend who told me this, it actually happened. He said, this guy came to see me, who I knew, he'd been smoking a packet of cigarettes, 20 a day for 40 years. And he had cancer. And he sat with his doctor and he said... What can you do to fix it? And the answer is, nothing much. The consequences of choosing to live one way for 40 years bring this result. The consequences of choosing to live in particular fashions and make particular decisions bring certain results. What this passage is teaching is, sin is its own consequence. It's not that God looks at our mistakes and falling down and punishes us for them. It's that the consequence of choosing not to walk God's way is agony. And it's often agony for other people, but it's always agony for us. So this passage is simply saying this. This story is simply saying this. The fruit might be enticing. It might be seductive. Because power and sex and money are as seductive today as they were for Adam and Eve. They were looking for power and sex. We don't have time to talk more about the story. And still today, those things are as seductive. But every choice we make has consequences. You see, this frees this stuff story from being some piece of dogma oh that's all about how we're fallen and original sinners and we're born in sin and that's tough luck there's nothing we can do about it and it makes it active because what this story is really about is the way I choose to live my life this week which is a real struggle because I am so tempted by the seductive fruit of selfishness but this passage tells me, choose that pathway and it will be hard. Choose a different pathway. And so as I close far too late, I simply want to say this to you. I'd like to leave a moment. And in that moment, I'd like you to ask yourself, as you set about this new week, at what points does the apple or the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil look seductively delicious to you? And how will you avoid it? And what pathway will you choose through this week? Because as we walk the way of God, we find life. And as we choose to bite into that apple, that fig, to be seduced by it, whatever it is, we live out the hard and barren consequences of that. Let's pause and let's pray.
Lord, as Adam and Eve find that once having been seduced away from the will of God and his pathway for them, they can't go back and life will always be different. We know only too well in our own lives the consequences of poor decision-making, of selfish decision-making, the consequences of being tempted by the apple, tempted by power, tempted by sex, tempted by fame, tempted by money, tempted by position and status. We find those things as alluring as Adam and Eve did. But we want to choose the pathway of love to follow you, the pathway of justice, the pathway of surrender, the pathway to live the way of Jesus. We pray that this week you'll be with us as we choose that way. And as the band begin to play and then we'll sing, I ask you to think about what specific situations will you find yourself in this week where you know you have that choice to make.